Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. And again, as you turn there, I want to remind you that the Bible isn't ordered chronologically. Um, some parts of it are, but more it's grouped together by similar kinds of literature or writing. So in the Old Testament, let's say you start in Genesis and you go through towards Second Chronicles or something. Those are all kind of the books detailing the spiritual saving history of how God was working in Israel. And that is somewhat chronological, but then you take a break from that and you go to their wisdom literature, poetry and songs like the book of Psalms and Proverbs, which those books were written during that beginning history by some of those people you learn about, like King David or Solomon. And they were meant to show you what was the life of faith like among God's people during that time. What songs did they sing? What prayers did they pray? What wisdom did they learn as God was bringing them out of Egypt into his kingdom? Then you return to another uh, another type of literature, if you will, to prophets. These were the preachers during those historical times. And so uh, Zephaniah, we read, well, kids, look at it. What king did Zephaniah preach during? Any kids see it right there in chapter 1, verse 1 of Zephaniah? Just shout it out. Just say it. Josiah. So if you wanted to look at Josiah, you'd look back at 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles. 2 Kings 21 to 22 gives a pretty detailed history of the time of Josiah. This is at the end of Judah's history, just before God is going to judge them. This is what it's talking about for their sin of becoming like the nations and worshiping the gods of the nations and taking part in the practices of the nations. Uh, and, and so just if you're newer to the Bible, that's how it's put together. So this is a book in Zephaniah that summarizes, if you would, so let's say Zephaniah preached for a period of years, many, many sermons, and this book was written by Zephaniah as a summary of what God was giving him to preach to call God's people back from their sin and, as we'll see in this text, to comfort them as they think about God's coming judgment. Now, our text, Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 4 to 15, moves from God speaking against the sins of his people and judgment against them to now the sins of the nation surrounding Judah. So Judah, that land, you have nations to the west that will see the judgment on, nations to the east that will see the judgment on, nations to the south that will see the judgment on, nations to the north that will see the judgment on. And in the middle of all of this judgment of the nations around, God gives very comforting promises and words for his people. And the way I want you to think about this, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it says this about God. That God is 
the most loving, gracious, patient, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving, iniquity, transgression and sin, and the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Amen? Isn't that good news? It says God is the most loving, the most gracious, the most patient. So this is what draws us to God, and we'll see that in this text. We'll see his great love. But then it says, and in addition, or withal, also, he is the most just. So you have that term, most loving, and now he's the most just. And terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. And we've been seeing that in Zephaniah. God is the most just. His judgments are the most terrible. And he will by no means clear the guilty. And so God's people need to have the faith to trust God for who has re- he has revealed himself to us and not what we would want him to be in our own thinking. And in the midst of God's terrible judgments we will see his great words of comfort to his people. And so don't neglect that. As you think of God's judgment, say against our nation, or against you or your family, you will sometimes be prone to despair and be depressed about it. So we need reminders of his mercy, and we'll see this in chapter 2. God will remind us of his great mercy in the midst of these terrifying pronouncements of judgment. And so what I want to do is show you that. I also want to show you how to take these promises made to hear Israel specifically, but how they're given to all of God's people for all time by faith. I want to show you how that works too. So let me read. This is Zephaniah 2 verses 4 to 15. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoasts, you nations of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the land of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, 
And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that I, that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no other. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fish. Let's ask God's help. God, you know, or we know that your blessing is upon those who walk in your law. That those who keep your testimonies, who seek you with their whole heart are blessed. Who do no wrong and walk in your ways. God, this does remind us of our failure to do so and our need for your grace. It does remind us of our need to be different from the world. And so, God, may our ways be steadfast in keeping your statutes. God, do not put us to shame. Fix our eyes on your commandments. Teach us to praise you with an upright heart. And so, God, don't forsake us, but now teach us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see in Zephaniah here, he turns from a sermon preached directly against the sins of his people to now preaching against the sins of four uh, points of the compass around Judah. So he first begins with a nation on the west, the, the Canaan, the coastland to their west, and then he switches to, in verse 8, to nations to their east, Moab and the Ammonites. Then in one verse, in verse 12, he mentions uh, past Egypt, the Cushites, modern-day Ethiopia area, before then going north, Assyria uh, and Nineveh. He's kind of giving you a sample of surrounding nations to say both God is God of all nations and he will judge all nations. So he's not here mentioning these nations because these are the only nations that he'll judge, but simply saying in a, in a round, surrounding Judah way, all nations are under uh, God. God is God of all nations. Now, we know this is true, but look, if you would, real quick at Psalm chapter 2. One of the things I want you to see as we go through this judgment language is to see that Jesus Christ is the one who will both judge the nations, he rules over the nations, and the one through whom God's people receive God's promises in the midst of this judgment. So this is all about Christ here in these verses. That's one thing I want you to get through your brain. In Psalm 2, you have the nations in verse 1. They're raging against God. They're joining together in union, plotting against God. The, the, the kings of the earth set themselves, take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, against his king. God laughs at them in verse 4. He speaks to them in his wrath. That's what we're seeing in Zephaniah. And what's God's response in verse 6 is to set his king, his anointed, his Messiah, and his king, his son, who's named his son in verse 7, speaks. Or God speaks to him 
You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, so God's anointed king, the promised descendant of David, God sets on a throne over all nations and he will judge all nations. He will destroy those who work futilely against him, but he promises salvation. Verse 10, listen, all you nations, listen, all you kings, be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. and kiss the son and come and submit to him. And so this is Jesus. Now, when did this happen? This psalm, uh, we don't have, like we do in some psalms, the author. But no matter. This was obviously written before Jesus' time. This was written after the promise was given to David of a son who would be king of all kings and ruler over all the nations. And it was fulfilled when Jesus came and died and rose and ascended to the right hand of God. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's the ruler of all the nations. He's the king of all the kings. And so when we're in Zephaniah chapter 2 and we see this judgment language spoken against the nations, we're going to see again that that judgment did take place in part shortly after Zephaniah's time, but the full fulfillment of it is yet to come when Jesus returns and judges all the nations. And so this judgment is by God's son, his king, Jesus. I just want to get your minds going in that direction right away. Sometimes Christians have been taught to separate Old Testament from Jesus. As if there's a separate train track for the Jews than from the rest of the world or the church. As if Jesus doesn't have anything to do with this judgment here, nor the promises of salvation. That's like a separate thing. It's not so. The Bible is one unified whole. Jesus is the judge and Jesus is the king. All right, so keep that in your brain, but let me ask a few questions. What, what is specifically the judgment for? Kids, look at this. In verses 4 to 15, what does God specify? What If, if God is reading out the indictment, for which he's judging them, what laws, what rules of God have the nations broken? What have they done wrong? Look at verse 8. They've reviled God's people. They've despised his church. They've boasted against them. Verse 10, they're full of pride. Again, they're taunting and boasting against God's people. Another one, verse 15. You see something of the boasting of the nations. This is specifically to Assyria here and the great capital of Nineveh. 
I am and there is no other like me. They, they think themselves like God. They are singular. So that's what the judgment is for. It's for pride. God set up this world to work a certain way. He puts his church here in the Old Testament, Israel, in the midst of the nations to be a light to the nations. To live as his people, to be different. The nations are supposed to see the goodness and glory of a people following God. A kingdom of heaven within this world that would bring the nations in. But Israel, rather than being God's people, became like the world. And the world responded with great pride and judgment. And so God is judging them. Now the nature of this judgment is seen, uh, summarized in verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them. You know that word awesome is used a lot today, isn't it? Everything is awesome. Kids, you get that reference? Yeah. Adults, do you get that reference? If you don't, you can look it up. It'll come up readily. We use it all the time. And sometimes we use it towards God. It is a religious word. It is a word that was once uh, used only in religious settings to show how different and exalted God is from everything else. He is awesome and nothing else is. <laughs> and what is awesome about God is his judgment are his judgments against the nations. Isn't that something? How many, when's the last time you used the term awesome in reference to God about his judgments? Don't we only use it about his love, his awesome mercy? The Bible typically uses the term awesome to refer to his judgments. It sets us in awe. So God is going to be awesome how against the nations? He's going to famish all the gods. He's going to starve them out. He's going to destroy all other gods and such that at the end of it, all other nations bow down to him alone. All the other gods, gods are starved and dead and emaciated and seen for the futility and nothingness that they are. And all the nations... Bow down to the one true triune God. So he's going to cleanse the earth of all the idols and all nations, all peoples, all tribes submit themselves, bowing down before God in heaven. Believe that? That's the future of the world, isn't it? Now again, you read such things in the New Testament all the time, don't you? We read Philippians 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You see, there, there's not a separation between Old Testament and New Testament. It's one. This promise here in verse 11 was given back to Eve of a descendant, a son who would crush the serpent's head, right? 
He would famish the idols. And all would bow before him. To Abraham, he would give a son through whom all nations on earth would receive the salvation blessings of God. So this is one promise. We see it happening here. And these promises in the midst of this judgment language of God, which is awesome of God, are these promises, these comforting words given to sustain God's people. But here's the thing. These very comforting words in the midst of this judgment will mean nothing to you unless you have the faith to believe that God hates sin and will judge it harshly. They'll just kind of fall flat. You know, springtime is nothing without a hard winter. You rejoice in a clean bill of health, not when you've always had a clean bill of health your whole life, but after your diagnosis of cancer and surgery and chemo and you've been healed. It's in the midst of God's judgment that his sweet words of comfort come home and bring relief and bring help. And and so you see this. Verses 7, verse 7, God says that all these nations, all their land shall become the possession of his people. They'll be given all the houses. Why? For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. So in the midst of the judgment on the nations around them, which God's people are around for, they're living in the midst of this, They have this promise given to them that they are to cling to and hold fast to. That God is mindful of us. God sees us. God has a special attention and care and love for us that he does not for the unbelieving world. His eyes are on the righteous and he attends to their pleas. But it's in the midst of the judgment around them that God's people cling to his word. Isn't that sweet? What a sweet sentence. So this is meant for the comfort and hope of God's people. Now you see in these verses specific language of how God speaks about who his people are before him. This is a question we sometimes ask people when we're counseling them because people can get um, out of mind, uh, forgetful as to who we are before the Lord. What's our identity, if you will? He says in verses 7 and 9 that we're his remnant. See that? That's one way that God refers to us. There is a people that God has chosen and set apart for himself. These are a people specific to him. That The Bible uses the language here of marriage often. We're his bride. He has chosen us and cleansed us and clothed us in a white gown and united us to himself in an unbreakable pledge of 
care and protection. And we're his. Verse 7 again, he calls us his house in family language here. Verses eight and, or verse 7 again, he, he says that the Lord, their God, this possessive pronoun, we are owned by God and God is ours. Sometimes use the singular, he's my God. We're possessed by him and we possess him. He's not a God in this sense of everybody everywhere in the world. He is their God. He is our God. See this again in verses 8 and 9. My people. I have children that don't belong to you. They're my children. They're not yours. There's a possession, a specific ownership by purchase through the blood of his son. These are my people. Again, this implies that there are some who are not his people, who live outside of his kingdom in the world, who have no faith in his promised son, but they're my people. Again, in verse 9, my nation. Verse 10, the people of the Lord of hosts. So again, don't neglect these precious titles given to us. You ask yourself, why does God say this about us? What reason could you find in us that God would say such things about us? Like, I can wait. Is there anything about God's people that would motivate God in looking upon us and evaluating us to speak these words? Is he here a poet moved by the loveliness of a fresh spring coming down the side of a mountain? Or is he here, you know, like a father seeing a child left to die on a hillside covered in filth that he takes pity on? Which one is it? It's the second. The reason he says these kind of words is what we call grace. It's just his kindness. It's not that we're anything. It's that he had pity on us. It's that he, out of all of the wretchedness of the world, chose just of his own initiative in love through Christ to redeem for himself a people. This is the entirety of the purpose of Scripture from beginning to end to show how God is choosing and redeeming of his own initiative from the world through faith in Jesus Christ a people for himself not because they're anything, but because of his mercy and love. So it's not to us that we give the glory, but to God. Okay, I wanted to point all that out to ask you to bear with, I'll probably lie here, a few minutes of theology. Can you give me that? 
Because this is an area that we're about to step into that is, has been controversial. But that I think a lot of people either haven't thought about or are mistaken on. So these promises here, within the midst of this judgment, who are they for? Were they only for Israel? Only for Judah here specifically? Or are they for us? Are there two peoples of God in the Bible? The Old Testament people of God, Israel over here, and God's doing their thing, and now God's kind of stopped that thing, and now God's doing a church thing, but that's about to come to an end, and then he's going to come back to these promises for the ethnic nation of Israel. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Israel's been all over the news again because of the attacks last fall, and now the ongoing war, and a lot of Christians think that there is this Old Testament covenant people of God, Israel, and because of that, they're separate from the church, but because of that, we have an obligation because of these Old Testament promises specific and only for Israel, have nothing to do with the church, that that sets that ethnic people as a separate, different entity from the New Testament people of God. And that's not how the Bible reads. To understand this, I want to give you the theological term. Here it is. Covenant of grace. Can you keep that in your head? It's a covenant of grace. You're familiar probably with the term covenant in the Bible. A covenant is a bond God makes with his chosen people, sealing it with his blood to save us and to be our God and us his people. And that covenant... It's a gracious covenant. It's not an earned covenant. It's not a bought covenant that you can get into. It's, it's a gracious covenant. It's one covenant from the beginning to the end of the Bible. The first place we see it is in creation. God made a covenant with Adam and Eve that they were to be Lord over everything. He would be their God. They would be his people. They were supposed to marry and have and raise children of the Lord and exercise dominion over the whole world. Do you see anything of that promise in Zephaniah 2? Do you hear it? Do you see it? What are God's people promised here? The world Everything that the wicked nations own and build will end up in whose possession? Whose will it be? It's not rhetorical here. This is like, I want you to answer. Ours. The churches. That, that began in Genesis 1 and 2. This covenant promise but adam and eve sinned right and what did god do gave them a promise in the midst of judgment does that sound familiar to what you see here in zephaniah 2 as he's judging them and removing them from the land he's promising them I will send a savior. I will send one who will crush the idols, crush the serpent's work, and I will clothe you 
shedding innocent blood. Then if you continue on, this covenant promise of grace that spans all of human history to Abraham. Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, I will make you the father of all nations. Through you will be a son that will bring salvation promises to all nations. This is how this goes on throughout the Bible. It's all connected. God promised through himself all by grace to save billions of people from every race and tongue and nation and tribe through Judah. Through the people he's judging here, there would come a son, true Judah, true Israel, that unlike Judah wouldn't follow the nations, but would follow his father, his God. And all who come to God through the son are now inheritors of this covenant of grace, which include these promises here. So, you remember we just preached through Galatians, right? Do you remember? Why don't we just turn there real quick? Maybe this will help make sense of this. Oops, that's Ephesians. If you look... At the end of Galatians 3, these would be very familiar verses. Verse 28. Hopefully this sets some bells off and connects some dots for you. What does it say in Galatians 3.28? There is neither what? What does that mean? It means that the promises of this covenant of grace, of inheriting the whole world and all of the blessings of God and being his people and he, our God, aren't given based on what nation you belong to. It transcends that. Then what does it say? There is neither... The, the inheritance of this covenant mercy of God isn't based on your status in the world, your wealth, your power, your privilege. And then, neither male and female. This is why circumcision is no more, because it was only given to the males. Because being part of God's promised church that will always endure isn't by your ethnic background or your socioeconomic status or your sex, but by faith in God's Son only. So this is why Paul If you're still in Galatians, flip to Philippians 3. This is why he says, you'll remember this, I have in verse 4 more reasons in of myself than anybody else to boast in the promises of God. I, I have more. I was circumcised on the right day. I'm a people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrew. He's got all of these things. What does he say? They don't matter anything. They're nothing. 
What is anything? It's just faith in Christ. And so these promises back here in Zephaniah, several hundred years before the time of Christ, are meant to constantly be the food that nourishes God's people in hope of resurrection from the dead. Not based on you, but based on God's grace. Not based on your power or prestige. Not based on your height. Not based on your slimness or fatness. Not based on anything but do you know and love Jesus. That's it. So all of these promises, as we read in 2 Corinthians 1.20, are yes in Christ. Yes in Christ. So let me apply this very specifically. God's people will suffer in this world. You see this here in Zephaniah 2. They're in a world that is under God's judgment. And God disciplines their own sin and he disciplines the nations around them for their sin and we suffer in this world. So have right expectations. And these sweet sentences in the midst of God's judgment are meant to be that which sustains you. So in our time of confession, I said, where did you go this week to comfort yourself when you were in turmoil and depression or in temptation? Where did you go? It's these comforting words in Scripture that are meant to sustain you. So parents, when you have trouble in your household, open the Bible. Bring your children to comforting words of God. When you have a bad day at work, go into the bathroom and lock it and get out your phone and open the Bible and remind yourselves of the greatness and power and kindness of God. When you're being tempted to sin, don't just sit there and try to white-knuckle it. Get up, go for a walk, and read some scripture or sing a hymn. Turn your mind towards God. That's what these are for. Second application, final. When we read again that God is going to famish all of the idols in verse 11, all nations will bow down, we must remember that we are here for the sake of taking the gospel to others. This work in verse 11 isn't a work that's done in spite of the church or through other means than the church, but just through the church. Sometimes Christians get enamored with big Christian events. Big name speakers who speak powerful and energizing words. And big Christian bands who light the stage on fire and Christians want to go there and they put their hope in these big events and big names and it's just the work of the daily life of the church that God famishes the idols and brings the nations to himself. It's just this. God doesn't use those big things like he does this. That's what this is for. I mean, we've seen this. We have seen people come to our church not because we're anything, but just because he is drawing people to himself through the everyday, normal, small, insignificant, pathetic lives that you and I live together. That's it. And he actually does real work in their lives. 
He brings them out of their darkness and sin and restores their lives and their marriages and their children and their homes and their work through the church. I think it's because we have very little faith in God's work of the church that we are so enamored with big names and big bands and big money revivals and on and on and on. But when God is going to revive a people, it's always through the church. And our faithful lives live together, proclaiming the gospel and going out into our community to invite people, to invite them over for a meal, to invite them to a service, to live our lives in holiness before them. This is the work of God by which he's going to fulfill verse 11. Just this. Why? Why does God do it this way? Why doesn't God use big money, big he gets us kind of junk? Why? Why does he just use this? Any ideas? For, because he gets all the glory. What are we? Through the folly of the gathering of the church and the preaching of the gospel, God will subdue all idols and save the nations so that no big money preacher can say he's anything. Just this. All right, do we have faith for it? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us faith to apply these sweet, comforting words to our daily lives, to the problems in our marriages, to the difficulties of raising children, to the pain at work or in physical illness, for sleepless nights, for money troubles. Help us to turn to your work constantly as our source of strength. And then also to see globally that you are a God who will destroy all idols, destroy all enemies, and bring all nations to bow before you through the regular faithful work of your people. And so may we be faithful to you, O God. May we humble ourselves constantly, repenting of our sins daily, joining together in unity and love. And so, God, may your blessing be on our church and the other churches in our area who are faithful to you, who love you and your word, and may your work continue, God. May you bring many who are yet to know you, to faith in you, just by our regular lives here. And so that you'll get all the glory, that we might be seen as nothing and you as everything. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.